Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Meet six extraordinary women who forged their own answers to a profound question. As a black woman, how does it feel to be free? Lena Horne. Abby Lincoln. They blaze such a trail. Nina Simone. Voice of the civil rights movement. Cicely Tyson. Accepted for her talent alone. Diane Carroll. We're at a new crossroad. Pam Greer. First female action hero in American film. Arts Express pays tribute to iconic African-American female performers in the documentary How It Feels to be Free who have not only lit up the stage, screen, and music worlds with their extraordinary talent, but challenged and transformed entertainment and society, complicit in perpetuating racism. Here is the director of How It Feels to Be Free, Yoruba Richin. But first, some scenes from the documentary featuring Alicia Keys as executive producer. Black women entertainers. They blazed such a trail. These women were pioneers in the industry. They were making a way out of nowhere. They actually had careers in a time when they really weren't supposed to have careers. Oftentimes they're forgotten, and yet these artists are the most influential and oftentimes the most vanguard uh, performers in American culture. On screen, on stage, in music, their choices of clothing their choices of hairstyles. They all took risks. When I think of all these women, I think of such credible human beings who really stood for equality and justice. And that is in the spirit of activism and the way that art and politics all crossed. inspired to make a documentary about these particular African-American female entertainers? Well, I read uh, the book, How It Feels to Be Free, in uh, 2014 when it came out. And even, uh, you know, as soon as I read the book, I knew that this would make a really powerful film. Um, These women's uh, careers in context of uh, their break, how they broke through, uh, in terms of representation of black women on stage and screen and how they, um, how they, their political work, how they each build upon each other's success. So I thought it was a really interesting take on looking at these, you know, uh, really important black women entertainers and how they set the stage uh, for, you know, for a lot of what we see today in terms of uh, black women behind the camera uh, and in control of their own, of their own, you know, of their own uh, representation. And how was Alicia Keys involved with you in collaborating on this project? And what was her interest in doing so? Well, uh, f- uh, funnily enough, Alicia Keys, um, her uh, producer, one of her producers, had also read the book and was interested in it as a documentary. And we got introduced through. Um, a organization uh, that is uh, has supports women documentary filmmakers, Chicken and Egg, where I won an award in 2016, and uh, they made the introduction to her producer. Um, they thought it might be something, you know, that she'd be interested in. It turns out she had been interested in it. Uh, and so when we brought the film, you know, when we said, uh, our, my team of filmmakers, me and my producers, that, you know, we wanted to make this as a film, she... Uh, she brought it to Alicia. Alicia immediately came on board um, and uh, and became an executive producer. And she uh, was, uh, you know, really great in terms of finding, helping us reach out to people. Her, you know, her her producer helping us reach out to people, and um, and you know, looked at uh, the the latter cuts and gave gave feedback. And what do you feel these prominent women can say? or impart to young black women today? Well, I think it's important for us to look at the long view. Um, You know, we are uh, in another racial reckoning, as we seem to, you know, be every every year or every couple of years. And to see these women and how they uh, took risks in their own careers and their their politics and uh, use their art as a form of, of, um, speaking out and, and protest and 
um, you know, and weren't uh, didn't allow the fear or the repercussions to their career stop them. Um, it wasn't always easy, and it's never going to be. And so I think we can take inspiration from these women and from their careers and from their political work. And how have you seen your own struggle to be heard in the film world as both black and female inspired by these female elders? Um, I think that, you know, when I first started in documentary uh, in the sort of late 90s, there were so few African-American role models as as directors. Um, I was lucky enough to be mentored by some some of them, but there were even fewer uh, black women directors. And so one is just being seen and be having a model of what you can do and feeling that, oh, that person has made a career out of this. I can do that too. So not having that model, I think uh, it can be, um, you know, challenging for, 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 you know, when you're starting out. And that definitely was the case. Um, I think a lot of it was internal um, in terms of, uh, you know, because you didn't have those models, and because you didn't see, you, d- you didn't see, you know, the green, the people who are green lighting projects. Um, most of the time, are not we're not black women or African American or people of color. Things have changed a little bit since I started. I mean, they've changed a bit since I I started, and um, you know, which is great. I think for up and coming filmmakers, but uh, you know, it still needs there still needs to be a lot more change in the industry. And what can you say about the recent renaissance of black film on screen, especially in the horror and thriller genres, opposing cultural apartheid in film and making movies their way? I think it's fantastic. I mean, I'm 48 years old. Um, I grew up, you know, in the in the 80s uh, when there were so few choices in the 80s and 90s, and there were so few choices um, of you know, of, of different, of, of representation and different kinds of films that we could watch that were made by black people or starring uh, African-American people. So it's amazing. It's a wonderful, as I said, uh, you know, and in different genres, as you, as you mentioned, um, taking the, you know, the horror genre or science fiction genre and turning it on its head in some ways. Um, but there obviously needs to be a lot more, you know, a lot more change as well. And what about the issue today of what we see, the resurgence of racism and right-wing violence in this country? And how do you feel that will affect black entertainment and the way movies may be made now and in the future? Well, you know, this resurgence is uh, something that we've, you know, is it a resurgence? It's something that we've seen, you know, forever in this country. Um, People may have felt a little bit more emboldened uh, during the Trump years, um, uh, but this, it's something that has never stopped. Uh, and, you know, and again, that's the, you know, when I say the long view, this is a continual struggle, uh, the struggle of the black freedom struggle and the struggle against white supremacy. In terms of how it'll affect filmmaking, you know, it's hopefully the, um, the green lighters, which are still mostly, you know, run by studios, the funders run by white men, um, that there'll be a change there and that, uh, you know, we uh, an acknowledgement that other stories need to be, uh, that people want other stories, people want other perspectives, people need other perspectives. Um, and so hopefully, you know, this will continue the push, um, you know, for for those changes. And on the other hand, how do you see the Black Lives Matter movement influencing film and entertainment culture now and in the future? I think uh, uh, I see it in documentary. I see that so many, a lot of films, uh, or there, uh, 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 that there are films that documentaries that people are producing or planning that are really taking on structural uh, racism and uh, from everything from you know police brutality to voting rights to um, you know my film about entertainment. Um, So there's. I think that there's uh, an acknowledge, there's a, a recognition that's happening um, in a way that hasn't before. Again, it's the multitude of stories about the multitude of, exper- of experiences that Black people have had in this country, and I think black, the BLM movement has, you know, been a huge part of pushing that to the fore. And getting back to your film, how would you say 
the struggles of these women as public figures was the same and different from their male contemporaries? Well, you know, I mean, the the toxic mix of racism and sexism uh, affects, you know, obviously has a unique effect on the experiences of, of African American women, uh, you know, throughout the throughout the ages. So, you know, whereas, you know, there's an example that we talk about in the film, whereas Abby Lincoln, you know, um, gets really when she puts out uh, her solo album that's very political, she gets slammed by these white male critics in a way that a Max Roach, her husband, doesn't get slammed. Um, and, uh, you know, it, she's sort of doesn't make us another album for many, many years uh, because of this terrible critique that she got. You know, Nina Simone, who was uh, her her um, her politics uh, were so, you know, out front. And when she you know made the song Mississippi Goddamn and Four Women and these other songs that really spoke to the experiences of black people and the anger of black of African-American people, um, she is called angry. And, you know, where someone like Matt, uh, uh, Miles Davis, who, you know, turns his back on the audience and is temperamental, he's considered a genius. So there's all kinds of ways in which these women suffer the twin effects of racism and sexism in uh, how they were perceived by, you know, by mainstream white critics. Um, yeah. And what about how you would contrast the struggles they faced in comparison to the sexism that white women, white actresses were facing? Uh, well, again, it's, you know, I think, you know, it, we can look at so many different aspects. You know, one thing that we talk about in the film a lot is the issue of, um, you know, looks and, and skin color and style. And, uh, you know, black women who were on screen were really, um, you know, for a long time, the, the only acceptable, you know, sort of film actress, if they weren't playing a maid, is, you know, was light skin and straight hair. Um, and so women had to contend with that. And some and someone like, you know, Cicely Tyson was one of the first uh, actresses who broke through and became, you know, a, a film star in her natural, you know, beauty, with her natural beauty and, and dark skin. Uh, Nina Simone and Abby Lincoln mo both made transformations. Uh, in, in terms of embracing an Afrocentric look and wearing their hair natural. Um, and, you know, we're highly criticized for that, too. So that's a really, you know, potent example that we that we talk about in the film. Well, what about the sexism that white actresses also face? How would you say it was or is the same or different from what black actresses face? Well, I think it's very different. I mean, there's the, you know, uh, there's the... Uh, there's a, in terms of actresses, there's the whole thing around, you know, uh, once you, what is it, once you pass, I, I think it used to be 30, maybe it's 40, <laughs> the roles just aren't there. That's changing, I think, a little bit um, as, uh, you know, as we have more platforms um, and as there are more women directors of all races, which is, which is great. But, you know, again, the studio heads, the green lighters are still mostly run by men, so it's still very hard for any actress to uh, get roles that are meaty and are worthy uh, of what they can do. But it's certainly been more, it's certainly harder for actresses of color. And are you working on anything next? I'm working on a few things. Um, let's see. Well, they're all in kind of developmental stages, but um, I'm trying to figure out the next thing that, that's coming out. Um, it's, this has been a, uh, a though it's been a, a really tough year, I have had a few films come out. Maybe I'll, I'll talk about that because I would love people to, to check that out. Um, I made a film that came out in September about the killing of Breonna Taylor, which uh, is streaming on Hulu. It's called The New York Times Presents, The Killing of Breonna Taylor. And then a film that I've been working uh, on before uh, COVID also came out, uh, ended up coming out in September. Um, uh, and it's streaming on the Peacock Network, and it's called The Sit-In. Uh, Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. Okay, well, thank you so much, Yoruba, for calling into our show. Thank you for having me. And if you can just um, just mention, we're, but it's for streaming, it's available on Amazon Prime. Thank you so much.
and How It Feels to Be Free continues airing as well on PBS. And coming up next... Hi, this is Jack Shalom. In our Poetry Corner this week, we highlight the poems of American-Canadian Molly Peacock as performed by Arts Express favorite Mary Murphy. Molly Peacock exemplifies the philosophy of why do or be just one thing. Whether she's writing as a poet, biographer, essayist, or novelist, her multi-genre literary life is infused with both playfulness and rigor. We're very happy to be able to present some of her poems to you. Molly's latest poetry collections are The Analyst Poems and Cornucopia, New and Selected Poems, published by W.W. W. Norton and Company. She is a former president of the Poetry Society of America and poet-in-residence at the American Poets' Corner. And New Yorkers will be happy to know she's the founder of Poetry in Motion on New York subways and buses that make our ride so much more pleasant. She's also the founder of the series The Best Canadian Poetry. And now poems by Molly Peacock, read by Mary Murphy. The Cliffs of Mistake To know you're making a mistake as you make it, yet not be able to stop, is to step off a cliff expecting to scramble backwards and up through the air to stand on the outcrop you step from, even though it can unhappen as you backpedal wildly with the second step, looking far, far below onto the moraine of pain you anticipate later, which is now only the shock of recognizing the result there's no leaping back from. Oh, God. And this is only a metaphor. Might this be what metaphors are for? To say what it's like before you hit what it is. Our minor art. We make love better unobserved. Not that we'd ever throw the new cats off the bed. We let them sit there, turning their backs, but listening anyway. We don't move in bed quite with the freedom we might without them but the fact that they stay is like being visited by minor gods. And we love the minor. It inspires us because we like being close to its genius, something we might come to understand beyond our human bounds, but near to our kind. Not like the major, a capitalized god, for instance, or uppercase art. Those are beyond us. Yet our transformation here in bed is art, something best made unobserved, even by the cats, who leap off as we forget them, and ourselves. Commands of Love The tragedy of a face in pain is how little you can do for it, because it is so closed. Having lain outlined in knives, Afraid to move. It cannot move. And therefore cannot love. This is why we say it is a mask. For the face is so frozen by hurt and fear. It is unable to ask for help. You can do nothing but stay near. This is why we hover over those in pain. Doing things unasked for and unwanted hoping simply with our bodies to cover pain, as if to protect it. Better to go away. But by asking for help, pain is erased, for the face opens to say what it has to say, and a beauty of concentration overcomes it. The pain is saying outwardly what it is. The help it asks for is what overcomes it, Help me on with this dress. Get me a glass of water. Look, I've made a mess. Both the face of pain and the face of the one riveted to it in relief 
believe there's still something to get, something to be done. Couple sharing a peach. It's not the first time we've bitten into a peach, but now at the same time, it splits half for each. Our then is inside its now. It's halved pit unfleshed. What was refreshed. Two happinesses unfold from one joy. Folioed. In a hotel room, our moment lies with its ode inside. A red tinge with a hinge. A face, a cup. The thousand hairline cracks in an aged face match the hairline cracks in an aged cup and come from similar insults. Careless, base, self-absorbed gestures from a younger face, cruel and fine. Bang! Each disturbed trace deepens to a visible crack. A breakup, a mix-up, a wild mistake. These show in a face like the hairline cracks in an ancient cup. Neither wholly broken nor all used up, the cup becomes a visage, unstable. One never knows what will crack it open and finish it. Banged too hard on a table? Yet happiness might crack a face open in a better way. Hairline tracery as lap lines releasing the joys of ancient thoughts cupped into use. And suddenly, able. Altruism. What if we got outside ourselves, and there really was an outside out there? Not just our insides turned inside out. What if there really were a you beyond me? Not just the waves off my own fire. Like those waves off the backyard grill you can see the next yard through, though not well. Just enough to know that off to the right belongs to someone else, not you. What if, when we said I love you, there were a you to love as there is a yard beyond to walk past the grill and get to? to endure the endless walk through the self, knowing through a bond that has no basis, for ourselves are all we know, is altruism, not giving, but coming to know someone is there through the wavy vision of the self's heat. Love become a decision. Why I am not a Buddhist. I love desire. The state of want and thought of how to get. Building a kingdom in a soul requires desire. I love the things I've sought. You in your beltless bathrobe. Tongues of cash that lull from my billfold. And love what I want. Clothes, houses, redemption. Can a new mob suit equal God? Oh no, desire is ranked. To lose a loved pen is not like losing faith. Acute desire for nut gateau is driven out by death, but the cake on its plate has meaning. Even when love is endangered and nothing matters. For my mother, health. For my sister, bereft wholeness. But why is desire suffering? Because want leaves a world in tatters? How else but in tatters should a world be? A columned porch set high above a lake. Here, take my money. A loved face in agony, the spirit gone. Here, use my rags of love. And you've been listening to the poetry of Molly Peacock, read by Mary Murphy. Thanks to Molly Peacock and W.W. Norton for permission to air the poems. Molly's website can be found at mollypeacock.org, and there you can find out more about all the wonderful projects and writing that she's doing and how to order her books. 
This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And the music you heard is composed by Frederick Ladon. Corner, actress Angela Bassett presents with music one of her favorite books for all ages, taking the Arts Express over to New Orleans. Welcome to Storyline Online, brought to you by the SAG-AFTRA Foundation. I'm Angela Bassett, and today I'm reading Trombone Shorty, written by Troy Andrews and illustrated by Brian Collier. Where you at? Where you at? We have our own way of living down here in New Orleans, and our own way of talking, too. And that's what we like to say when we want to tell a friend, hello. So, where you at? Lots of kids have nicknames but I want to tell you the story of how I got mine. Just like when you listen to your favorite song, let's start at the beginning, because this is a story about music. But before you can understand how much music means to me, you have to know how important it is to my hometown, my greatest inspiration. I grew up in a neighborhood in New Orleans called Treme. Any time of day or night, you could hear music floating in the air. And there was music in my house, too. My big brother, James, played the trumpet so loud, you could hear him halfway across town. He was the leader of his own band, and my friends and I would pretend to be in the band, too. Follow me, James would say. There's one time every year that's more exciting than any other. Mardi Gras. Parades fill the streets and beaded necklaces are thrown through the air to the crowd. I love the brass bands with their own trumpets, trombones, saxophones, and the biggest brass instrument of them all, the tuba, which rested over the musician's head like an elephant's trunk. Where you at? Where you at, the musicians would call. All day long, I could see brass bands parade by my house while my neighbors danced along. I loved these parades during Mardi Gras because they made everyone forget about their troubles for a little while. People didn't have a lot of money in Treme, but we always had a lot of music. I listened to all these sounds and mixed them together, just like how we make our food. We take one big pot and throw in sausage, crab, shrimp, chicken, vegetables, rice, whatever's in the kitchen, and stir it all together and let it cook. When it's done, it's the most delicious taste you've ever tried. We call it gumbo. And that's what I wanted my music to sound like. Different styles combined to create my own musical gumbo. But first, I needed an instrument. The great thing about music is that you don't even need a real instrument to play. So my friends and I, 
decided to make our own. We might have sounded different from the real brass bands, but we felt like the greatest musicians of Treme. We were making music, and that's all that mattered. Then one day, I found a broken trombone that looked too beaten up to make music anymore. It didn't sound perfect, but finally, with a real instrument in my hand, I was ready to play. The next time the parade went by my house, I grabbed that trombone and headed out into the street. My brother James noticed me playing along and smiled proudly. Trombone shorty, <laughs> he called out, because the instrument was twice my size. Where you at? From that day on, everyone called me Trombone Shorty. I took that trombone everywhere I went and never stopped playing. I was so small that sometimes I fell right over to the ground because it was so heavy. But I always got back up and I learned to hold it up high. I listened to my brother play songs over and over and I taught myself those songs too. I practiced day and night, and sometimes I fell asleep with my trombone in my hands. One day, my mom surprised me with tickets to the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, the best and biggest music festival in town. We went to see Bo Diddley, who my mom said was one of the most important musicians of all time. As I watched him on stage, I raised my trombone to my lips and started to play along. He stopped his band in the middle of the song and asked the crowd, who's that playing out there? Everyone started pointing, but Bo Diddley couldn't see me because I was the smallest one in the place. So my mom held me up in the air and said, that's my son, Trombone Shorty. Well, Trombone Shorty. Come on up here, Bo Diddley said. The crowd passed me overhead until I was standing on stage next to Bo Diddley himself. I walked right up to the microphone and held my trombone high up in the air, ready to blow. What do you want to play? Bo Diddley asked. Follow me, I said. After I played with Bo Diddley, I knew I was ready to have my own band. I got my friends together, and we called ourselves the Five O'Clock Band because that was the time we went out to play each day after finishing our homework. We played all around New Orleans. I practiced and practiced, and soon my brother James asked me to join his band. When people wondered who the kid in his band was, he proudly say, that's my little brother, Trombone Shorty, where you at? And now, I have my own band called Trombone Shorty and Orleans Avenue, named after a street in Treme. I've played all around the world, but I always come back to New Orleans. And when I'm home, I make sure to keep my eyes on the younger musicians in town and help them out, just like my brother did for me. Today I play at the same New Orleans Jazz Festival where I once played with Bo Diddley. And when the performance ends, I lead a parade of musicians around, just like I used to do in the streets of Treme with my friends. Where you at? Where you at? I still keep my trombone in my hands, and I will never let it go. I love this book because from a simple neighborhood that uh, may not have a lot, you can have such a big impact on the world. You can travel the world, and you can always come home and be an inspiration to your own neighborhood, New Orleans. There's no place in the world quite like it. If you get a chance to go there, the music, ah, it inspires you. And the food, ooh. So thank you, Trombone Shorty. Thank you.
And coming up next, actress Beth Grant pretty much needs no introduction. If you've seen Rain Man, Dragnet, Flatliners, The Golden Girls, Friends, The X-Files, Donnie Darko, Six Feet Under, Little Miss Sunshine, No Country for Old Men, and as Andy Warhol's mother in Factory Girl, you've seen her, and in nearly a hundred productions more. This time around, Grant seems to be in the mood for something a little different and way off the beaten path, as a strange southern sheriff with an aversion to outsiders, in this case going toe-to-toe with Nicolas Cage, just passing through in Willie's Wonderland. Could this be yet another in a seemingly emerging trend, reflecting the real-world conflict right now of red states versus blue states? Beth Grant ponders the question, along with how she's been instrumental in redefining and expanding the way women get portrayed on screen, in particular older women, and what it was like filming this horror movie in Chuck E. Cheese. First, a scene from Willie's Wonderland, then Beth Grant. Hayesville Sheriff's Office. Sheriff. Sure. The Sheriff line. It's Chris Mully. What can I do for Chris? It's me stupid. We're at Willie's. Trouble? Prank call. You want me to get that? People made their beds. They got a lie in them. Pretty sure the saying is protect and serve, Sheriff. <laughs> Shut your mouth, smart guy. They're not funny. Get your asses out of there, son. Put your balls on, Evan. We're going to Willie's. to be at, on your show. I love the Art Express. I want to move back to New York. I look at apartments on Zillow. Did you <laughs> see that SNL sketch with uh, Dan Levy and uh, people obsessed with moving to the country? Me, I'm looking at Manhattan and Brooklyn. Oh, that's great. <laughs> okay, great. Okay. What was it about Willie's Wonderland that lured you in as Sheriff Lund? well a few reasons one grant kramer one of the producers is one of my dearest friends for life we were in acting school together so that was number one and number two i've worked with nick cage before i love nick cage i love cage rage my daughter had told me because she knew that i loved him and uh she said mama you gotta go to hashtag cage rage and so i did and, you know, he's just got such a great uh, wit to everything that he does. And uh, so anyway, those two reasons. I worked with him on Matchstick Men, and then I had helped him cast a movie he directed called Sonny. And so I, I just thought the world of him. So, But I have to say, mm. I took my nieces to Chuck E. Cheese. God bless Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> but <laughs> I found it to be a bit of a hellhole. I mean, the first time I took my nieces, I'm sorry to say the pizza is just unedible. And they serve alcohol and they have children's birthday parties. They have all these, you know, drunk adults. There was one woman on stage with the animatronic animals, you know, dancing wildly. And I thought, and this is where I brought my five-year-old nieces. And then, of course, uh, after that, with my daughter, I've been to many parties there. And I didn't hate it as much as time went on. But to think of Nick Cage, Cage Rage, destroying (laughs) all those animatronic animals, it just was hilarious to me before I ever even read it. So all of those reasons. How could I say no to any of them? 
And and what's it like making a movie with that radically charismatic actor, Nick Cage? And would you say he's anything like his characters in real life? Oh, what an interesting <laughs> question. Well, no, he's a pussycat. He's the sweetest little fella you ever met in your life. Kind, polite, um, just darling. Really, he is. And Matchstick Man... Um, May I mean, you know, that's when I first really got to know him, and we didn't have a lot to do together, but just gracious, kind. Um, yeah, not at all like his characters. Maybe, what was the one that he did where they were searching for the, you know, hidden treasure, the Mason's mm. thing, uh, yeah. National Treasure 2? I happened to see that in a hotel room, and on a plane back and forth to New York. So I've actually seen that movie three times. Mm. And in terms of Willie's, I just think the genius of this movie is that he never says a word. Yeah. I mean, no single word. And yet he mm-hmm. he cleans up and cleans Willie's up for good. <laughs> I think mean, that place is. Yeah, back to the back to the silent movie era. So, yeah, yeah. so what did you figure? What did you figure out about Sheriff Lund to play her and to go inside her head to get into character? Well, I had always wanted to play a sheriff. That's another thing. I just felt like I had it in me, and I've used. Um, I'm not. I'm so funny because I'm practically a pacifist, but I, and I don't care for guns. However. Many times I have carried guns in roles. I don't know what about it is about me that looks like I need a shotgun, but it, it <laughs> happened on a couple of Hover, American Gods, uh, Holy Ghost by Romulus Lenny, and now finally I get to be a sheriff and use it legally. So mm. <laughs> I was thrilled to get to play a sheriff. And I felt that it, her role was particularly important because I have to deliver a lot of exposition and I found that, uh, even though a lot of it's voiceover, I found it uh, uh, scary. I love to be afraid. You know, I know you hear actors say that all the time, but I do. I love challenges. I love to be scared and to say, can I do it? Can I do it? Is there a way to make the exposition interesting? Can I make her so real that this crazy movie has this one really real character so it was it was great fun for me in that way. You no, know, and I loved. I didn't wear any makeup, and uh, the only other film that I ever didn't wear any makeup was Rain Man. And mm. I don't know. There was just something about very different characters. You know, yeah. <laughs> the mama of the six kids versus the sheriff. Maybe that's who she grew to be later in life. Mm. <laughs> and I guess that's possible. And would you say this movie has been in any way influenced by the growing divide? between red states and blue states. Oh, how interesting, you know. <laughs> Let me think about that. I have to think about that one. Uh, well, I think we're, we've probably all got a lot of uh, pent-up anxiety and perhaps some cage rage in all of us, you know. <laughs> and so maybe it is a way to exercise some demons and some anger in a healthy way I think uh, that these kinds of movies, especially when there's a lot of humor to them, um, I think that they can offer us a way to get rid of some of our anxiety. So, yeah, I would say probably so. Probably that is because I'm telling you, people are, I can't get over all the emails and, you know, people hitting me up on social media about this movie. And so, yeah. Hadn't thought of it that way, but I think we're starting, hopefully, you know, to find some peace and harmony. But there's always that stuff lurking. Yeah. And how would you say you've been in the vanguard of reshaping and redefining women's roles and how women get portrayed on screen? Uh, well, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I was thrilled uh as was my daughter, she came running in. Mama, you're one of the ones, you're one of the few that has passed the Bechdel, Bechdel test. You know, this was many years ago. And I've forgotten, I think it was maybe Little Miss Sunshine. I'm trying to think what film it was. But, you know, to have a scene with two women not talking about a man. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I guess in, in this case, you know, Sheriff Lund is certainly her own woman. Yeah, I kind of really get to 
drop my stuff in this movie. I, I like that. And yet I'm gentle and kind because I'm very much in love with Emily's, uh, Emily Tosta's character. Um, mm. I, I think I, she does touch my heart. And I think that they allowed me to show that. So she's mm. not all tough. Yeah. She does have love. She's just trying to protect her the best way she knows how. And what are your memories of being part of Golden Girls and especially that formidable B author? Oh, man. Uh, she is formidable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I got to do two episodes, just thrilled to death. The first one, um, I had just worked with Rue McClanahan at the Amundsen Theater out here. We had done a version of Picnic with Gregory Harrison, Michael Learned, and uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, who actually got me my first movie role, Jennifer Jason Lee. We did this play together, and she uh, brought John Stockwell to see me, and I was in this movie called Undercover. So anyway, little trivia on the side there. But I had become quite close to Rue, and uh, so I knew her when I came on the set. And, of course, Betty White was everything that you would hope she is, just gracious and kind. And most of my work was with Betty. But at the table read, you're right, uh, the author was there, and I was such a huge fan. I loved Maud so much. Mm. And a lot of people <laughs> said that I reminded them of the author, you know, which is a, a great compliment. But I, I guess I can be Sheriff Lund in my personal life as well. <laughs> because, <laughs> but I was a bit intimidated by her. I was. I did talk to her. And um, I think she had just won an Emmy. And I think I had voted for her, of course. And I think I remember congratulating her and saying, you know, I was so thrilled. And she said, Thank you. Thank you very much. Boom, the door shut. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it's like, you know, she wasn't that interested in discussing her uh, long-awaited Emmy. But, um, you know, I, what, a, what a great, fabulous yeah. actress. And so what an honor to work with those ladies. Wow. I've been very lucky. Yeah. I've had a wonderful career. Oh, yeah. Now, I read that your trademark is considered, quote, almost always playing someone who is arrogant, conservative, a stickler for rules, or even downright evil. What are your thoughts about that description of you? <laughs> That's hilarious. I love it. Well, I am. I will say, um, yes, they're not wrong. I have played a lot of those characters. Now, I've also played some very sweet mamas and some genteel Southern Bells on one Mississippi I'm thinking of. I played a New York uh, radio station manager in City Slickers with Billy, and I've done, um, you know, I don't always play terrible, terrible people, but I've had my fair share. I know um, with Donnie Darko, I was just so excited to play the iconic Kitty Farmer. That role was just fabulous, and and my husband said, you do know that this character is you. I said, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? But he he thinks that I am, I will say he thinks that I am a stickler for rules. I like, I'm a Virgo. He's a Virgo. My best two friends are Virgos. And, and he says, because we're the only ones that can stand each other. And I do like things a certain way, certain order. But I'm also wild and crazy and friendly, and I love people on some days. <laughs> on other days, no. I do believe I believe in the power of love. I try to be a channel of love every day. But, uh, yeah, if people don't do it right, I tend to get a little ornery. <laughs> yeah, so I can't. I, I can understand my casting. Plus, I think, you know, we're all given as artists a certain instrument, and I do have very angular features in my face. And so even when I'm in a great mood, people can think that I'm mad or upset. My daughter, when she was little, would say, Mama, Mama, why are you mad? Say, oh, no, I'm not mad. I'm not mad. It's just my face. And I would start smiling. And I, since she was little, I have made a conscious effort to smile, you know, so that people don't misunderstand. Yeah. And what can you That's say? Funny. And what can you say about some of these films you'll be coming up? And you play mom and confessions of a closeted people pleaser. Confessions of a closeted people pleaser. Well, I don't know. It's listed, I'm, but maybe it doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe, um, maybe my agent is uh, working on something I don't know about. I mean, these <laughs> things do happen. 
I mean, honestly, with the way social media is, and yeah. I think that I even booked a movie through Facebook once. I, you know, I called my agent. <laughs> I said, "Well, this is sort of strange, but I have this offer, and I am. I read the script, and I am interested. It's called Sedona." And then we got my friend Frances Fisher in it, and she and I got to play best friends, so we had a blast from Facebook. I'm telling you. So, yeah, maybe this is coming up. Tell me that title again. I like it. <laughs> Confessions of a Closeted. Oh, a Closeted People Pleaser. And what about this one, a Breeder, about a mysterious reclusive dog breeder who may not be what oh. she seems, and are you the dog breeder? Yes, and I hope that one happens. I have to say, I really like that young director and the script. Pretty demented, but it—it's a she is a dog breeder. But guess what? Mm. She also learns to breed people. Mm. So I don't know that it's not only that it's in the future. I think it could be happening now. Mm. You know, if they can clone sheep. And dogs and so on. Then I hope it's not happening. <laughs> I think we'll. If that one gets made, we'll scare the bejesus out of them and oh. they'll quit. We won't Uh-oh. do it. <laughs> okay. I have no idea what the status of that one is, uh-huh. but I do like that script. So. Okay. <laughs> and when Beth Grant looks in the mirror, what does she see? Oh my goodness! Mm. Uh, a wise crone, <laughs> and I mean that in the best. I think that finally I know stuff. And Willie's Wonderland is out now online. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again, just you and me. Change again, change again.